good morning, and turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 27, 27. Ever since I was a boy, I've had a mild fascination with boats and the water and the sea. Maybe it's because I grew up in Michigan with the Great Lakes surrounding that state. And the Great Lakes are called the Great Lakes not because they're pretty good lakes. They're huge. I think 1,300 feet is the deepest in Lake Superior. That's, that's deep. They function more like the ocean than they do your typical lake. As a kid growing up around the Great Lakes, adults would often tell kids, you go out too far, the current will take you out and you will die. You'd be out in a boat on the, one of the Great Lakes and someone would say, if you jump in, you will die. It will pull you down, you will die. I'm sure it was hyperbole to scare a little kid like me, but it worked. Maybe I'm fascinated with boats and water because when I was in the fourth grade, my dad's friend invited our family to join him on his 55-foot sailboat off the coast of Maine for four days. You can imagine how impressionable that was, how awesome that was. I mean, to, to live out there, to live on a boat, to, to steer the boat. I steered the boat maybe half or three-quarters of the time. It was a very simple job. You can't get it wrong. He'd say, aim for that. And I would aim for that. But I was, I was captaining a ship, a boat. I'm no sailor. I've never owned a boat. But I have this weird fascination with things like rogue waves and Discovery Channel shows about Alaskan fishing crews and things like that. And we've all seen that, even if you're not into the water or boats, you've seen video, maybe not even experienced it yourself, you've seen footage of the power of the water, power of the sea. You might love the sea, you might hate the water, but it's hard to deny the drama and the mysteriousness of the sea, especially with people caught in it. So if you like boats and ships and the sea, you're going to love Acts 27. And if you don't like anything nautical or water-related, well, buckle up. Uh, the choppy waters are coming. And that's the first of many bad puns I have for you today that will probably accidentally just flow out of... See, there it goes again. Acts 27, I'm going to read the whole chapter of 44 verses. It'll take about five minutes. I know that's a bit, but this is God's Word. God's Word commands us to read the Word together. And this is just some great storytelling. It is dramatic. It is gripping. More than that, it's true and historical. And more than that, it has divine purposes and eternal implications if we have ears to hear. Acts 27, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee or the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, 
Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, and on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor in sailing along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since they were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned." Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for all those, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. From the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, "'Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved.'" Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Quite a story, huh? But why is it in the Bible? Why is it in the Bible? You might say, well... God wanted it in the Bible. 
God is the author of the Bible, ultimately. Yes, he used human beings. We talk about dual authorship, but we can say this is here because God wants it here. All Scripture is inspired by him and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. You might say Acts 27 is in the Bible because, well, it really happened. This is firsthand eyewitness stuff. The writer of Acts, Luke, is on the ship. And hence, you see a lot of we, first-person plural. We did this. We saw this. This happened to us. You might also say Acts 27 is in the Bible because it's part of a bigger story. The book of Acts is about how the gospel began to spread in the early decades of Christianity. This is part of it. There's a small part, but it's part of it. Or you can narrow in a little bit on one section of the book of Acts and say Acts 27 is in the Bible because the last one-fourth shows us how Paul got to Rome, how he got to Rome, the epicenter of the first century world. So back in chapter 21, the ball started rolling. Paul was arrested based on false charges. Nevertheless, he's standing before various officials and crowds, and he's defending himself, but really defending his faith and defending his Christ and defending the gospel and turning his defenses into sermons, even appealing to his hearers to believe, to be saved, to join him, to become a Christian. In one of those hearings, Paul appeals to Caesar in chapter 25. It's something a Roman citizen could do in order to get a hearing or a trial at the very top of the legal pyramid before Caesar in Rome. Before that, Jesus told Paul, even though he was in prison, just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify about me in Rome. That's what's coming. We saw over the last couple of weeks Paul's defense before King Agrippa and the governor Festus in chapter 26. Again, Paul appeals for them to believe. He wants them to become like him, to become a follower of Christ. Sadly, they don't respond to that, but they do make this legal conclusion, which you see at the end of chapter 26. Verse 31, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So they put Paul on a ship bound for Rome. He appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he will go. Acts 27 tells us the adventure of the journey of getting there. Now, before we're done this morning, I'll come back to that question of why Acts 27 is in the Bible and what's it do for us? What's it mean? How do we apply it? But to understand any more about why Acts 27 is in the Bible, we just have to get into it. We have to jump into the deep end and start paddling. Sorry, I'll, I'll try to stop. Let me start by showing you briefly the big picture or the literary structure of the whole chapter. It has beautiful literary symmetry. Two halves which mirror each other. Verses 1 to 20, we might call a storm brewing, ending with despair, its lowest point. And then the second half, verses 21 to 44, show us hope amidst the storm. And then with each of those halves, there are four parts to the drama. And each one of those four corresponds to the one like it on the other half of the chapter, if that makes sense. It'll make more sense once we get into it some more. Watch for it, though. Here's the first half, a storm brewing. And then here's the first part of the storm brewing, what we might call a departure with mixed signals. It's a departure, and there are mixed signals. Now, we don't want to read too much into this. 
And certainly Paul was not one to be looking for signs or circumstances that would sort of communicate what's in the future to come. But you can imagine the average ship captain would be looking for signs, be looking for omens, be, be looking to see what the weather is like and how the circumstances are going to see if it's going to be a, a good journey or a bad journey. And on the one hand, you have positives. Paul is finally heading to Rome, just as was promised by Jesus, though he was on hold for up to and over two years. Paul has two companions with him. He's not alone. He has Luke the writer and Aristarchus. He's in the custody of a reasonable and gracious Roman centurion. We see this in verse 3, when they harbor in Sidon, Julius the centurion allows Paul to go into town, to go to his friends, and to be cared for. I don't even know what that means, but you can imagine Paul coming back to the ship with a smile on his face, perhaps with some food in his pockets, and some fellowship that had been had. On the other hand, though, there are some hints, some foreshadows of trouble ahead. Verse 7, they sailed slowly for a number of days. They arrived with difficulty in Snidus. The wind would not allow them to go further west in a straight line, but forced them down south. So they sailed under Crete. They coasted off of it with difficulty. You see how it's difficult, and we know what's ahead. You see, verse 9, after much time passed, much time, the voyage was now dangerous. Not slow, not delayed, not rerouted, now dangerous because the fast, that is the day of atonement, had already passed. So we know when this is, roughly. We know it's sometime after October 5th, day of atonement, either in 59 or 60 A.D., and in these days, the Mediterranean Sea would become unusable about mid-November through the rest of the winter until spring. There were just too many, too many storms. It was just too unpredictable, too dangerous. And the months of October to mid-November would be iffy, sketchy. If you go out, you know you're rolling the dice. No one goes out past mid-November, but these are the days where it's risky and iffy to try to go out. Which leads, secondly, to a disregarded prisoner. A disregarded prisoner. Under these circumstances of wind and redirection and danger and storms possibly coming, Paul's advice in verse 10 is to just play it safe. They're in fair havens. That sounds like a nice place. I've never been there. But that's a great name. It sounds like a retirement village. <laughs> Paul says, let's just stay here. Let's bunker down. Let's, let's wait out the winter as people would do in those days. But others on the ship say, no, why don't we try to get to Phoenix, 40 miles to the west? I mean, who doesn't want to winter in Phoenix? It's not that Phoenix, though. It's a different Phoenix. But, but even still, you can see on a map where we've gone already in this journey. They've left Caesarea. They stopped in Sidon. They've gone around the island of Cyprus. They would have continued straight northwest to Rome. But again, those winds of verse 7 and verse 8 forced them south. And they're now hugging the island of Crete. They're in Fairhaven, and some say, let's not stay here, let's get to Phoenix if we can. It's only 40 miles away. If we zoom in, you can see why Phoenix might be more desirable. Storms would be coming from the northeast. And if you can get to Phoenix, you get more buffer, more shelter. It's a softer, gentler winter. Not only that, you also have, you've got the financial considerations to keep in mind. This is a merchant ship. 
The centurion and his prisoners, they've simply hired out the ship using the extra unused space for travel. But the ship's primary purpose is to get cargo to Italy and on time, to get it there on time. But they've already detoured south and they've already been delayed. And so they suggest getting to Phoenix. Paul disagrees, but his advice is disregarded. And why wouldn't they disregard Paul's advice? Paul is a, a short, not so handsome Jewish guy who, he's no famous fisherman or sea captain, he's a preacher. And yet, we know that Paul was, for a preacher anyway, an unusually seasoned traveler. One scholar counts 12 different sea voyages that are recorded in the book of Acts before you get to Acts 27. 3,500 miles, it's estimated, on the sea before you get to Acts 27. According to Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 11, he says that he was shipwrecked three different times before Acts 27. This will be the fourth. He says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he once spent a whole night and a day out in the deep, at sea, floating, trying to survive. He was an unusually seasoned traveler. He's seen a thing or two. Thirdly, it's a deadly storm. We've known this is coming. Paul anticipates it coming, and it comes. It's called a northeaster with tempestuous winds. This is hurricane-like or typhoon-like force. And the descriptions Luke gives are vivid and dramatic. Verse 15, the ship was caught. It couldn't face the wind. They had to give way to the wind. They were driven along by it. Verse 16, they managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. That is the ship's dinghy. A ship like this, bigger than a boat, would have a lifeboat or a dinghy behind it in tow. But if you're in the midst of a, an aggressive storm, you don't want that thing bouncing around. And so with effort, with great effort, with great trouble, they get it onto the ship. Verse 17, they use supports to undergird the ship. This was called frapping. They would wrap cords around from the bottom all the way to the top and then around again and around again to provide a girdle, you could say, for uh, the hull of the ship. They lowered the sails. They were driven along. And again, notice how vivid the language is. Verse 18, they were violently storm-tossed. They had to begin jettisoning the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Not just fishing tackle, sailing gear. The very stuff you need to make it out there. They can't, they can't have it on the ship because they need to get lighter so that the ship is more buoyant and a little more agile in these seas. This is all a remarkable description of what's going on. And it's apparently very accurate. Apparently, these were the typical steps of sailors in these days, in these waters, who would find themselves in progressively difficult seas. A guy named James Smith in the 1840s, a Scottish sailor, he spent a winter in this part of the world in order to investigate the events of Acts 27 on the actual playing field of the Mediterranean Sea. He wrote a book, almost 300 pages in length, called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. It is the authority on the logistics of what's happening in Acts 27. In the end, James Smith's findings substantiated and validated the account we have. Here's what he says. Luke, the author 
of Acts is thoroughly versant in nautical matters and describes them in the appropriate language of seamanship. No one could by any possibility attain so complete a command of nautical language who had not spent a considerable portion of his life at sea. Not, however, as a seaman, for his language, although accurate, is not professional. It's not that of a professional sailor. The difference in the manner of describing nautical events by seamen and landsmen is too obvious to require remark. Oh, yes, of course. I'm not sure why it's so obvious as to not require any remark, but that's because I'm a landsman. But he says, but there is a third class of authors who are, properly speaking, neither seamen nor landsmen. I mean those who from some cause or other have been much at sea, who from living with the officers of the ship and hearing nautical matters constantly discussed, necessarily acquire the use of the technical language of seamen. An attentive examination of Luke's writings shows us that it is to this class of authors that he belongs. That's great, isn't it? It's fascinating. Luke is there, and Luke heard things, he saw things, he had to do things, and he wrote those things down. Of course, now we're looking at this account and thinking about it in our mind's eye from the vantage point of someone in the 1840s who says, yep, that's what happens out on those seas, that's legit. We need to get back in the boat and experience what's going on. Things are bleak for Luke and the rest. Verse 20, they couldn't see sun or stars for many days. That means no navigation, no awareness of where they are. There's no GPS in these days. There's no compass in these days. It's stars and sun or nothing. And the storm is so great for many days. No stars, no Son, the result, the result of this first half, despair, despair. At least for now, it's despair. Verse 20, at the end, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. But there in the darkness and in the despair, hope emerges. The second half of this chapter Hope amidst the storm. The drama and the suspense will remain. In fact, it will escalate. We've already read it. We already know that. But there will be a swell of encouragement, of hope. First, there's a divine encouragement. Verses 21 to 26. Apparently, Paul got a visit from an angel with a word from God. And he passes this along to the 275 other people on the ship. He does begin verse 21 by saying, you should have listened to me, by the way. You realize that now, right? And he's not so much doing a, and I told you so, uh, just just to be trite. No, he's trying to gain their ear. He's trying to gain their trust. He was right. He did know they should have listened to him. And even more now they should listen to him because he has a word from heaven. This word from heaven partially repeats what Paul has already been promised some two years earlier. Remember 2311, that hallmark promise, as you've proclaimed things about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify in Rome. That's going to happen. And the angel says something similar, verse 24, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. You will. But there's new information here from the angel. Verse 22, no loss of life will be had among you. Verse 24, God has granted all those who sail with you. God has granted perhaps implying that Paul had been praying for that very thing, for the survival and safety of those on the ship. And weave between all this in Paul's speech to the ship are some wonderfully rich lines that I'd encourage you to meditate on later on your own time. 
He says, take heart to these people. Do not be afraid. He repeats, take heart. He refers to the God to whom I belong. Isn't that great? The God to whom I belong. I'm his. I am bought with his blood. Verse 25, he says, I have faith that it will be exactly as I have been told. What great sentences we have here. Secondly, this leads to Paul showing himself as a decisive leader, a decisive leader. Having passed on the encouragement of this word from heaven that they will make it, the ship won't make it, but the people will. Paul gets practical after this. He gives three practical directions to the ship. Verse 26 is the first, we must run aground on some island. He's taking the lead here, not not the commander of the ship, not the owner of the ship, and not the centurion. Paul says, here's the plan, guys. We must run aground on some island. And within some time, apparently they're coming up on some island. They think that it's there. They maybe can hear the sound of waves on a shore, which sounds different than open seas. But they can't see because it's midnight. So verse 28, they... They check the depth. It's 20 fathoms, 120 feet. A little later, they check the depth again. It's 15 fathoms, 90 feet. The shore is getting closer. And so they let down their four anchors, verse 29, not to stop the movement of the ship, but to slow it down. You don't want to come barreling in to a shore full of rocks. They let down the four anchors. And they prayed for day to come. How desperate is this? They're heading towards some shore. Well, hopefully we don't go in too fast. Let down the anchors. What else can we do? Pray. Pray. Pray that we see. Pray that day comes before rocks do. Feel the desperation. Feel the desperation of the sailors who attempt to jump ship. Verse 30, they're going to get in a lifeboat and get the heck off this ship before it hits rocks. They even try to pass off this maneuver like they're doing something they should be doing. They say, oh, we were just getting the boat down to lay out some anchors from the bow. Now, maybe a sailor finds that impressive. I don't know what that means. It sounds to me like a pretty crummy cover-up. Oh, we were just going to go out in the boat in the middle of the storm and put down more anchors. Oh, well. Paul's response is his second moment as a decisive leader. Verse 31, he goes to the centurion and says, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. These are the sailors. This is the crew. Paul's advice was ignored before, but now the centurion heeds it. His soldiers cut away the ropes for the dinghy, and it swept into the sea. Then thirdly, Paul's encouragement to eat food is another practical move representing his wisdom. The past 14 days have been so intense and so violent and have demanded so much work that people haven't eaten And so Paul urged them to take food. He reasoned with them, it'll give you strength. He reminded them, not a hair in your head will perish. And then he gave thanks to God and broke bread. He ate himself. And then they were encouraged and they ate as well to their fill. By the way, this chapter is almost like a case study in the doctrines of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is clearly sovereign. In this case, through an angel, we know what the outcome is. We know what the promise has been, that's been made. All will survive the storm. That's sure. The end is locked in. But does that then lead Paul to fatalistically 
like Jonah did, just go down to the belly of the ship and take a good long nap. Oh no, Paul is active, he leads, he speaks. We must run aground, the sailors have to stay on the ship, and for crying out loud, everyone eat something, your blood sugar has dropped, you're all grouchy, and besides, we got some work to do, so you better eat. God is sovereign, and human beings are responsible. And we can't fall off either side of the horse on this. It's not that God is sometimes in control and other times we're in control. It's not that God ordains the really big things like who you marry and when you die, and he leaves the smaller things up to you. It's not just that God knows the future. That's true, but it's not saying enough. He's not just omniscient. He's not just prescient. He is powerful. He's acting. He has a plan. It's not that God is 80% in control and we're 20% in control or responsible. It's 100-100, mysteriously so. Theologians call that tension or perhaps better, that marriage of the two ideas, they call it compatibilism. These things are compatible, they go together. They call it concurrence because they run concurrently. People are making choices and God is ordaining the means and the end of everything all at the same time. And this is enormously practical, not just theoretical or highbrow theology. If I operate like the outcome of anything, you name it, is on my shoulders and resting completely on me, then I will, rightly so, be driven mad. I'll be paralyzed with fear, with fretting, because I can't make things happen. I can't affect it. I can't do what I hope will happen. But if I operate like it's all up to God, only up to God, whatever will be, will be, I can't change anything, I don't need to do anything, whatever happens, happens. Well, then I will give in to laziness and carelessness or hedonism, and then I'll blame God for it. You see how you need both? You see how Paul shows us both? Thirdly, we finally come to a demolished ship. A demolished ship. What a long night it has been. Verse 27 said it's midnight. Now in verse 39, it's dawn the next morning. The sun comes up and they see land. They don't recognize it. Let's look on a map again. They're going to land in Malta. They're going to, they're seeing the small island of Malta. At one time, they thought citrus down there a little further southwest was what they might hit. But no, it's not quite that far southwest, but it is, it is far west. It is 400 and, let me get it right, 474 miles from where they left in Fairhaven to Malta over a two-week-plus span. And of course, that, that guy, James Smith, he's done the calculations and says, yeah, that works, that's about right. That's about what a storm would do in putting you across the Adriatic Sea at that pace. Nevertheless, they see land, they prepare for impact. Verse 40, they cast off the anchors because you don't wanna go in slow when you're talking about a beach. With rocks, you go in slow. If it's a beach, you want to go in fast because you want to get up to the coastline as, as, fur, as far as possible. They untied the rudders because you got to be able to steer. You want to hit the right spot on the beach. They hoisted the foresail or the main sail, again, for more speed. But they strike a reef, verse 41, a sandbar. Now they're stuck. What's worse, the stern was being broken up by the waves. The ship 
is being destroyed. Just, just feel the drama. Just, just pause and, and just sort of recollect on the, the endlessness of the threats. Just one after another, they just keep coming and coming. It's like one of those movies where suspense grows and grows and grows and grows and grows, and you're wondering, when will you just take a breath? Shouldn't we just take a bathroom break? I wish there was a commercial for this movie. The climax never comes. It almost feels like that. And then it goes from bad to worse. It's just then, when they're on the ship that's falling apart, with cold waters around, in a good long distance from ship to shore, that the prisoners hear the sound of swords being drawn from their sheath. See verse 42? The soldiers decide to kill all the prisoners. You see, the penalty to a soldier who allowed a prisoner to escape was his own death. So rather than let the prisoners escape and then their lives be in danger with their higher-ups, they will just kill the prisoners right there on the ship. And then the centurion steps in. He says, no, 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 boys. Put your swords away. He steps up, he leads, he breaks up the passengers into two sides, those who can swim and those who can't swim. He says, hey, those of you who can swim, go over there on the port side of the ship, jump in the water and start swimming. Those of you who can't swim, go over there on the starboard side, jump in and you will find some debris floating. Grab it, hold tight, kick your way to the shore. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Isn't it beautiful? Here's the result. Deliverance. Deliverance from it all. Deliverance from the shipwreck. Deliverance from the sea. Deliverance from the storm. Deliverance from the sword. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. It almost has a... A Disney, dare I say, kind of wording to it? Or, or if you don't want to think Disney, uh, think old fantasy story in print. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The end. It's not the end, not yet, but it's the end for this Sunday. All 276 were brought safely to land. Captains of ships, like moms of little kids, count heads. They count heads at the beginning, and if there's a, a catastrophe that happens, well, you better count the heads again and hope the number is the same. What a story. But why again is it in the Bible? What is it doing here? What does it do for you? How does it change your Monday, let alone eternity? How does it encourage us? How does it give us more conviction? That's the reason Acts with Luke was written, that Theophilus might have more confidence. How does this give you confidence? Well, four Ps quickly will help us think through that. First is providence. Providence, Acts 27, portrays the surety and the mystery of God's providence. Providence is God's plan to provide and protect his people in marvelous and intricate ways. His providence is sure, but it is also mysterious and peculiar at times. It is curious. Even when life feels chaotic, and as chaotic as this kind of storm and this shipwreck and being this close to death, God rides upon the storm. For Paul, he went through a literal storm. His storm was a literal storm, just like El Guapo. You know, we all have our own El Guapo, but for you, it's the real El Guapo that's your El Guapo, right? 
Well, Paul has a real storm. But keep in mind that storms in the Bible are often the metaphor that the Bible writers use for other kinds of trials, any other kind of difficulty. It's in our hymnody. We sang several hymns this morning that talk about God in the storm. So I ask you, what storm are you heading into? What storm are you coming out of? What storm are you in right now? What's your perspective on it? You may need to do something practical. Eat some food. You know, you may need to fix the sails or whatever is the equivalent. But you may also need to give more time to prayerfully meditating on God's marvelous, intricate, sure, and and mysterious providence. He's this in control. He's this good. Secondly, protection. Related to providence is protection. It's part of his providence. So marvel at God's intricate protection. Play the what-if game with Acts 27. What if the centurion didn't see the swords come out and didn't know about the soldiers' plans to kill the prisoners and Paul died right there? What if the crew had successfully abandoned ship? What if Paul never spoke up that day? He's tired of speaking up. He speaks up everywhere he goes. He's just ready for a quiet ship ride, even if it's going to be horrible. No, he speaks, and God uses it, and the centurion stops the soldiers, and and the crew is is stopped from abandoning ship. Think of the what-ifs in your life. What if God hadn't? What if you experienced this or that? really bad thing that you didn't. I think most of us play the what-if game only when something bad happens. We say, well, if only this hadn't happened, then that wouldn't happen. But put it in reverse. Give time to ponder what difficulties the Lord hasn't given you. Psalm 124 does this. If the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been doomed. The waves would have came crashing over our heads. Oh, but the Lord has been on our side, and we are thankful. Third, promises. Acts 27 reminds us of God's faithfulness to his promises. God said, Paul, you'll get to Rome. The angel said, you'll stand before Caesar. The angel said, not one on the ship will be lost, though the ship itself will be. God's promises are sure, even when it looks like they take a wrong direction, or when they look like they could be in jeopardy, or, or it looks like it's on hold, no progress. No. Now, God hasn't given you a word about how long you'll live or whether you'll even live tomorrow. Paul's promise from the Lord Jesus In chapter 23, verse 11, and from the angel in our chapter, it's unique. It's special. So don't put promises into God's mouth that aren't there. However, Christian, you have so many promises in this book. You know, I would never really encourage one of those Bible promises book where it's just a bunch of promises floating apart from their context. That's not a great way to read the Bible. But if you have one of those, don't repent of it. Actually, go home and use it today. Just today. Tomorrow, read your Bible like in its context. But, but just, just to see promises, promises, promises. And sing again, standing on the promises of Christ my Lord. Stand on his promises. Fourth, progress. Gospel progress, that is. Join God's sure plan for gospel progress. That's what the book of Acts is all about. The unstoppable gospel. It's unhindered. It's not stopped by a mob. It's not stopped by Jewish leaders. It's not stopped by Roman governors. It's not stopped by a king. 
It's not stopped by a northeaster, whatever that is. It's not stopped by waves. It's not stopped by a shipwreck. In fact, what we'll see next week is on the island of Malta, there is new ministry. There are new opportunities. There are new people to talk to. There are new miracles to be seen. There are new relationships to be formed. There are new people who become Christians. But not if there wasn't a shipwreck. Join God in his glorious plan for gospel progress. But hold on. It'll be interesting, won't it? You better jump on his ship. Well, you'll go for a ride. The day may be sunny, or it might be dark. But we know that the end is sure. We've said so many times in our study of the book of Acts, look around, we're proof the gospel has spread. It spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and it is going to the ends of the earth. Perhaps it will spread here this morning, not because we have a passage that's so clear about the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners and was raised on the third day and gives forgiveness to anyone who believes that and calls out for it. Our passage doesn't have that in it, but that's what's behind it all. Perhaps the gospel would spread to you today for the very first time, and you'd come to get on this ship with this God, this Jesus. I pray you would. Let's pray. Lord, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's our hope. And we don't trust ourselves in our best possible state on, on our best possible day we wholly lean on Jesus name Lord we pray that that would spread here and all over the world to the ends of the earth until you return Lord Jesus we pray for those who are with us and don't really get what any of this is about Seems like a weird story about a storm and a ship and the sea. Lord, I pray you'd give them eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray they'd keep asking questions at the very least. I pray, Lord, they would find answers and answers in Jesus. We pray as Christians, Lord, that we would further stand on the rock of Christ, such a solid rock. May we again confess this morning May we believe it to be true and may we show it with our actions that all other ground is sinking sand. May it be so for your name, Lord Jesus, and for your sake. Amen.